Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Beacon. I'm Bruce Mole, and our guest today is Philip Ang, the general manager of the MBTA. Mr. Ang came to the MBTA after 40 years working in various capacities in New York transit and transportation agencies. He brought in his own management team. After I recall, initially, he said he was coming alone on the first day he was introduced to the press and succeeded in focusing the agency's attention on addressing slow zones this year. He is coming up on a year at the T. It's about a month or two away, which is a good time to take stock on a few issues. But let's start with a few fluffy questions, Mr. General Manager. But please keep your answers short. It's sort of like game show time here, if you don't mind. So you're new to Boston. What's your favorite thing about Boston? You know, um, I love the culture. I love all the activities that you can do um, and the friendliness of the of the public. They've been so welcoming to me. It really is um, makes my passion to do right by the T for them even much greater. So I thank you very much for that to the public. What's your least favorite thing about Boston? Uh, you know what? I, I don't know if I have any right now. You know, I really enjoy this role. Um, if I didn't want to come to Boston, the, regardless of the job, um, I, I would have found a reason not to take this job. So um, I enjoy it. And I don't know if that's a cop out of an answer, but I do enjoy it here, Bruce. You're somewhat of a politician. I, I understand <laughs> that. So when you're when you're not writing the tea or worrying about it, what do you like to do? Well, you know, the the ability to go out and enjoy some of the areas here, whether it's going to catch a sporting event, whether it's going to some of the fantastic restaurants that we have, or I think as some people know, I enjoy a craft beer here and there. Um, so it is, um, you know, those types of things just to get out and about. Uh, and when I'm not on the tee, it's so walkable as well. So it's really a lot of um, fantastic things, waterfront, you, you name it, we have it here. Do you watch TV? Um, I don't watch as much as I used to, um, but it is on occasionally with with my daughter in the apartment and my wife watching some things. But um, I try not to uh, follow too much all the time. So you don't have a favorite show or anything? Uh, no, a lot of my shows are probably uh, a lot of people these days won't remember what my favorite shows are. So, <laughs> All right. And where are you living in the Boston area? I am in the Cambridge Crossing area right now. I am right uh, minutes from Lechmere, um, short walk to Community College. Um, and I have a view of the commuter rail as well from my windows. <laughs> so I can see all three of our systems, including the busway at Lechmere. <laughs> Always a plus to have a view of the commuter rail. <laughs> all right. So let's take a little more up your alley type questions. You've been focused and done a very good job of focusing the T's attention on eliminating slow zones over the last six or seven months. And uh, your hope is to eliminate them almost entirely over the course of this year. And at the last board meeting, you were able to report a lot of progress. I think the chart on that said you've gone from slow zones covering 26% of the system's track last September to 14% currently. And you've said you hope to eliminate them all and by the end of the year and expect ridership will bounce back as service and reliability improve. Yet the T in its in the January meeting had a pro forma looking out five years and it looked at ridership. And it wasn't so rosy about where that's headed. It was, I think we're at 60% of pre-COVID levels now and they were forecasting by fiscal 29 
they had various scenarios, but the scenario they picked was we'd be at 65% by then. And the most optimistic scenario, the best one was 75. So I want to ask you, I mean, I know you're hopeful that as you build reliability into the system, riders will come back. Do you think we'll ever get back to pre-COVID levels or has that fundamentally changed transit in Boston? Well, I think we always, well, I know we always measure ourselves against pre-COVID levels, but I also know that there is a changing ridership pattern uh, and we need to embrace that. The five day a week going in on a Monday um, and every day of the week for five days and coming home at the end of an eight hour shift, um, that has changed with flexible hours. Uh, but I also know that riders will use mass transportation um, if it's more frequent, if it's reliable, if they know it's safe. And that's what we're focused on. The projections, um, you know, I think it's important to, uh, as we look at budget needs, um, not to be overly uh, aggressive with that. But from my perspective, my goal is to make the riders know uh, we're focused on the comfort of their trip, the safety of their trip. Um, and when they enter our system, they could get from point A to point B in this time of uh, a lot of that we plan in our schedules. That's why the track improvement program is so important to folks. And the way we're going about it now, uh, as we've been demonstrating over the last few months, is that we can get in, do the work we promised, and put the trains back at the full speeds that they were designed to run at. So, and I think everybody's on board and enthusiastic about that, but this question about where ridership is headed, um, there's a lot of money being invested in the T and probably more in the future to improve it and get better. And that's a, I think everybody welcomes that, but are we going to get a big bang for that? In other words, with ridership, do you think we'll get back? You think it's fundamentally changed that, you know, we're only going to get 75, maybe 80% of pre-COVID levels or? Well, Bruce, you know, early on, one of the easy questions of why I enjoy being in Boston is one of the reasons I also think people will come back to the system. Inherently, um, there are some folks who love driving their cars and, you know, that's fine. But if you take a look at the traffic and you look at the amount of time you spend sitting in traffic, if you know that the system, the mass transportation system is more reliable, more frequent and doing, uh, providing the level of service that we've promised, I think people will start to try and use it again. There are folks that need to use it right now and, and that, you know, we're focused on making sure they have the best trip that they can. But we also know that as we start to show to the public that the system is going to get them where we promise to take them, I do think that people will come back. Um, and it doesn't mean every day, but it, all it needs to be is it's an option. And in my case, I, I like to say this, it, it could become a preferred option because um, there's nothing easier than just hopping on a system and just letting us take you from point A to point B. I think the youth of today, um, they're looking for that. I know... Um, in my prior role, the biggest thing I always wanted as a parent is to make sure um, that our children, their children in the future, can afford to live, work, and play, um, and in this case, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And mass transportation um, allows that freedom and flexibility for people to get around and not rely on owning a car or being um, transported by someone in, in a car. Okay, so I'm I'm not to be a nag here, but the the five year pro forma. Do you disagree with where they come out in fiscal twenty nine, or do you think, or or is the return to the T because you're going to eliminate these slow zones at the end of this year, and that should send a pretty strong, I think, should send a very strong message to riders. 
You think the pro forma needs to be adjusted? Uh, I think the pro forma is taking a very honest approach at looking at the ridership and ridership patterns. I'm I'm probably taking an optimistic approach that as we rebuild the system and as we make the system uh, more inviting, um, that I want to show that we can bring people back. And I, at the board meeting, one of the things I demonstrated or I talked about was the commuter rail side of the T. And that system is running over 90% on-time performance annually over the last few years. The uh, management of that folks have worked very hard on developing improved schedules that give us more frequency, uh, give more reliability. So people, they know if they're going to take the commuter rail in, they can take the commuter rail home. Um, also, the improvement of service during off-peak hours and even scheduled service for events. And I think that is where I'm looking at too, right? If it's not five days a week for working, uh, but if the mass transportation system can support you going into the city for a meal or to meet friends or doctor's appointments or sporting events, and you know you could take it, whether it's um, during the traditional peak hours or off-peak hours uh, and weekends as well, I think people will come back. I think what the you're seeing with the pro forma is us just needing to make sure that we don't um, overestimate that return to ridership and put ourselves in a deeper hole because that's still unpredictable. But what we need to do is demonstrate why the T is the right way to go. And that's getting it back to what we've been focused on. The governor, uh, the administration, the secretary, they've been super supportive of the need for us to focus on um, rebuilding our workforce because without them, uh, we won't be able to deliver the levels of service that the public deserves, but then also start to rebuild our infrastructure. And the tracks is one of the key components um, in addition to all of the other areas. Uh, but we're also doing work in our stations as they're doing track work. And that is the environment that people first see, I think. It's almost like welcoming someone into your living room, right? You want them to feel that it's clean, it's comforting, it's safe, um, and that they want to come back. So let me ask you about another thing that's going on at the T um, this year, the low-income fare. The, the governor is pushing funding for that seems to be gaining support, obviously has to go through the legislature yet. Do you think that will boost ridership quite a bit, or is it primarily an equity issue? Uh, I think it's both. The importance of mass transportation is for people that can't afford to have a car. We want to encourage people to get out of their cars, but there's a there's a population that needs to be able to use mass transportation, that needs to be affordable. Um, the fiscal year 24 program, had $5 million set aside for the T to investigate and develop a pilot program. Uh, that allowed us to set this up where now we're optimistic about this $45 million um, that the governor has proposed for our fiscal year 25 budget. The Using the 200% of the federal poverty level, there is an estimate that when we get fully ramped up, we can see up to 60,000 new riders in our system. And that's also to help the riders that are currently using it but really can't afford to pay full fares but also then those who are not using it right now because they can't even afford it. Um, and this will give them the option to use it. 50% across all of our modes is really also huge. That includes the commuter rail, the ride, um, the buses, the subways, and, and our ferries. And uh, when you think about that, for people that are counting the dollars every day just to put food on the table, pay bills, that could be a game changer for them to be able to rely on mass transportation and not have to think about owning a car. And do you envision ever raising fares in the next five years? You know, Bruce, that is something that I think as we work through 
ridership return as we work through improving service. That is always going to be something discussed, but fair revenue right now is only about 19% of our operating costs. Um, it is a, is a component of it, and I don't think anyone can ever say never, but I think the intent is that how do we make it affordable, but how do we also make sure that the T has enough operating dollars to be able to continue to deliver those services? There's a lot of components to looking at fares, and I, I don't think I have the answer for that yet, Bruce. All I can say is that um, in the past, it has been something that has been considered, and right now we're just trying to make it more affordable. And given the state of the system, you know, I think we first need to get it back to where it's reliable, safe, um, and get that ridership back first. And do you uh, have any update or, or where does it stand? I remember many, many board meetings ago, they there was a video of you using a, this pass with the new fare system to get in. You were sort of testing it at a station. Where are we on that? Is that something that's coming next year, soon? What's your What's your take on that? So the uh, automated fare collection, um, the ability for contactless uh, payment, the tap and go, as you want to call it, uh, with whether it's a credit card, the cell phone, I've been piloting it since late last year successfully. Um, the vendor, Cubic, um, it's a public-private partnership contract that we have, has been installing the readers across our buses, across our subway lines, and we're optimistic that we will have the ability to deliver this um, to the public uh, sometime this year. Uh, as I say, I've been using this right now since I think November. Uh, our plan is to expand it to a larger pool uh, of testers and, and demonstrate that it can handle the volumes. And then I hope to, in, in the very near future to be able to offer this to our riders. It's something that I've heard from many riders that they want this convenience. Um, other agencies across the country have it, and there's no reason that our riders shouldn't have it. And when you use it, do you use a, a T card or do you use your credit card or do you try them all and just to sort of test it out? The the plan is it'll be whether it's an iPhone, a Android, uh, a wireless uh, credit card, the rider will be able to use any of those. For those that don't have these, they'll be able to use a card that could be preloaded. Um, but in the meantime, the Charlie card will still be in existence. So we want riders to know that that's not going to be phased out uh, immediately because the intent is to be able to ensure that anyone that uses the system today doesn't have to um, change if they don't have all these mechanisms at hand. So it'll be an evolution that we want to make sure that everybody can take advantage of the system. So jumping gears to a, an issue that I know you've been grappling with, and there's probably not too much new to report, but I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about the company assembling the red and orange line cars out in Springfield, CRRC. In past communications, you've sort of said the cars that are coming are operating very well. And the, most of the new orange line cars are operating very well. But what I wanted to ask you about is sort of a more contextual question. The companies is not allowed to get any, sell any cars as part of a contract with that would involve federal money, which as I understand it, most subway purchases involve federal aid to do that. So they're sort of blocked in. They're trapped in contracts they have, but they can't maybe expand that much. At least that's my thinking about it. I just want to get your sense. That's a tough position to be in for them. But I, I look back and, you know, you at one point said, uh, you know, they take great pride in their work. 
this is important for them as it is for us. Why is it important for them? How do you convince them that it's really important to carry through with this contract? Well, they're the number one car builder in the world uh, when you when you look at all their other uh, production across the, the globe. And just in conversations, because we've had many senior management meetings with them, um, they do take pride in that. Uh, you mentioned, and it's true, um, you know, after winning this contract, there were things that occurred that really put them in a difficult position because of the business model that I, and I'm not one to talk about their plans, but my my belief is that when they, uh, when they bid on these different contracts and they have contracts in LA uh, as well, their intent was always to continue to uh, pursue other work. Um, it certainly puts them in a difficult situation, um, but I also know that they take pride in delivering the vehicles um, I've talked about this in other venues. The way rolling stock is procured, I've always thought that there has to be a different model in terms of um, procuring them. What happens in the typical U.S. or North America is that a company will go out and they need X number of cars. It'll take six years to design and build those cars. And then by the time you have that, you're building up a workforce to build brand new cars with brand new designs. And there's always a learning curve there. And then when you finally start to get them, the contract starts to wane down. And then you don't you don't go after new vehicles until um, some 20 years later uh, when you start to get to the midlife point of these and you start to realize you need another one. And what happens is, is that um, there's a design course, a non-recurring design for every new car. Um, the owners of those designs are those manufacturers and not the agencies. Uh, so every time an agency procures it, you know, we're incurring new costs. And imagine if you're, you know, an auto manufacturer and, and every time you put out a new car, that workforce disappears and then you come up with a new workforce for the next year's designs. That's why it is a challenge. These are very complex vehicles. But I think the important part is that we've gone through the period where we are getting cars and they are performing as well as they are. The Orange Line today has 15 train sets running. And because of that, we've been able to reduce the time between trains, even though we haven't had a chance yet to go in and tackle all the speed restrictions. That in itself is improving the trip on the Orange Line until we can fix those speed restrictions later this year. In fact, we'll be doing four days next month uh, on the Orange Line for some of that. But then also, you know, we have 110 Orange Line cars on property. We have 18. We just received a married pair of Red Line cars yesterday. Um, that will enable us to run three train sets on the red line. Um, and with every time we get new red lines, we're going to take the old ones off the off the service. The riders will start to see the same improved performance that we're seeing on orange on our red line. And that going hand in hand with the track improvement program, it's going to be a big win for the riders. They will see marked improvement, um, not only in terms of the trains running at the speeds they should, but also just the comfort of walking into a new train car. And, and knowing that it is um, state-of-the-art technology. Are they building cars for other transit systems out of Springfield? Or when this job is done, is, is Springfield done? They have a contract in Springfield for LA as well. I believe the way this is structured is while they can't pursue other work, they actually can pursue work uh, from entities that they already have contracts with. Um, I'd have to let others actually verify that. Um, but... They are right now focused on still continuing to give us the cars that we need, and I'm pleased for that. 
there are some challenges that they have, and you know we're having meetings with them uh, to continue. But we've we've seen um, a marked improvement over the last, uh, I'd say, six to eight months in terms of the ability to hold the schedule right now. So that's that's good to I think for the public to know and for us to have some confidence that we're going to continue to see cars. So your your tone is. I'm reading between the lines. Your tone is pretty optimistic that it may not be coming as fast as you'd like, but it's coming and the cars are of high quality. Yeah, the challenges that they're facing, uh, it's not uncommon just for rolling stock. You know, I was in D.C. a few weeks ago. Uh, we met the White House had a roundtable with the American Public Transportation Association. And the reason for that is bus manufacturing, uh, particularly electric bus manufacturing. Um, the U.S. is down to only two uh, manufacturers that remain. And part of it is post-COVID, the amount of inflation, uh, the way these contracts are structured, the White House and the FTA uh, issued a dear colleague letter to us. Basically, it's saying that they want agencies to take a look at the contracting methods that we have, even the ones that are ongoing, because inflation has really put these manufacturers in a tough place, um, whereby material supplies, Shortages have caused issues. Cost escalation has caused issues. And they're looking at agencies that are including in these contracts price adjustments, advance payments, progress payments. Um, and they would like us to uh, all across all transit agencies minimize customization. And that's something that I've been focused on even before this dear colleague letter from FTA. Um, customization is on one hand, um, it's nice, but on the other hand, it becomes a challenge later on when you need to replace components. Um, and or it makes it even more costly for these vendors to deliver, whether it's train cars or buses, um, if you're going to have custom windows. And, you know, that was an example uh, on the buses um, that these few manufacturers, every agency has a different window design. Imagine the cost that they've incurred. Uh, so those are the things that federal government is really pushing. And it makes sense for us to standardize designs across uh, transit agencies. Well, I could go on and on and on, I think, with more questions, but um, I don't want to take more of your time. But hopefully you'll come back again in the future and we'll have a continued conversation. But I wanted to thank you for joining me today. It was really good to chat with you. Yes, there's so many topics, Bruce, and I appreciate it. And I'll certainly come back. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you.